We're starting this new series. We polled you several weeks ago and asked you to give us all of your questions about prayer. Tonight's kind of an intro. I'm not sure how interactive we'll get. I welcome you to jump in at any time, but I'm going to be doing a lot of reading tonight to give you some questions and some ideas of what exactly this series is going to be about to kind of set the stage and give us an overview. So questions about prayer. We've got a lot of them. First of all, let's talk about why you even do a series about prayer. Let me throw out some objections, I guess, would be a good place to start. Are we taking on more than we can handle? When we asked you to give us your questions about prayer, we ended up with 75 of them. You know, Knowing this group, it would take us 75 weeks, one question per week. That's about how much we can get through. Maybe we're taking on more than we can handle. That's to start. Here's another one. Are we really going to come up with any real answers? I've heard that. People have tried to answer questions about prayer, and the answers end up shallow. My response is going to be that depends on you. Depends on when you think an answer is not good. I want you to push back. That's why we do this interactively. That's why I don't just stand up here and tell you what I think. Because frankly, as most of us know, a lot of us struggle with prayer. A lot of us really, I mean, even people who write books on prayer struggle about prayer. It's what usually leads them to write them. So are we really going to come up with any real answers? Well, that depends on a number of things. The Holy Spirit speaking through all of us is probably the one it depends on the most. So be attuned and give us your input. Haven't we already done a series on prayer? That's a good question, objection. Why do it again? Yeah, we did. There is a series on prayer. In fact, let me just review briefly the one that's on our podcast website. Kind of went through a couple things. Here's some points just to take out of that series that we already did to show you what's different about this one. In that series, we made the observation that there's been thousands of books written on prayer. Apparently, if there's a market for them, it means that people still haven't figured out how to pray yet. In fact, a survey was done recently, 645 people polled, and 23 of them said they felt like their prayer life was doing pretty good. That's a very weak percentage. Most people, if you poll them, just think, yeah, my prayer life is not doing that good. So apparently the Christian book industry understands this and just keeps putting out more books because we know that if we publish more books, it'll solve the problem. Apparently not. Hey, but every year you get some new ones. That's the cool thing. Here's another thing we said in that series. We find it easy to do the things we enjoy doing, and we don't find any time, or we find it difficult to do the things we don't want to do. And that was a keen observation, because what it means to us is that, well, we'll do easy things or fun things. We don't need a book about that, by the way. In that series, we said, There's, we don't really need a book to go out with your friends on Friday night. You don't really need a book to go see a movie. You don't need a book to go out to dinner. Like, it seems like we know how to do that. So when there's a lot of books, in my mind, that means it's something we're really being stubborn about that we don't want to do or we just don't like doing. And that was an observation that we made that really tried to frame the discussion of what makes this so difficult. Another way to look at this is, I don't need a book to hang out with you and have a conversation with you. You guys are my friends. But if I need a book to talk to Jesus, maybe he's not my friend. Maybe I don't really care about him as much. Now, I know some of you are already itching to say, well, if he talked back, I know we're getting there. Well, that's part of why this series is here. Prayer is born out of a relationship we identified in that series. It's born out of a spirit of adoption. See, we've been adopted as sons and daughters of our Lord. That's what gives us the privilege to pray. So I've also said that it's a conversation, not a transaction. It's not like, how do I get, or what do I need to do to get, or why don't I get, or how does this work? It's more about a conversation. Of course, that again, it brings up that, that aching in our heart. I don't hear anything back. How could it be a conversation? 
But the idea is still biblical, and it's repeated that we have been adopted as sons and daughters, and this is what gives us even our right to cry out, Abba, Father, to cry out as sons and daughters of the King. That makes prayer also a privilege given to us. We don't see it that way. And finally, in that series, we spent the most part of it focusing on using the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, as a model of how we're supposed to pray. So why are we doing this series? We could just refer you all there. This one, I really want to focus on the questions. Tonight is going to be an intro. It's going to cover some other things, but predominantly what's going to drive our discussions for the weeks that we do this is your questions. We're just going to take them and walk through them. At some level, though, I want to point out that I think our questions can sometimes be an excuse not to pray. Sometimes we ask so many questions, and it might be, for some of us, that it's a way of putting prayer at a distance and holding it away like, you know what, until I get all my questions resolved, I'm not going to really pray. That's convenient, but that's probably not the way it's going to work. Many people, to even discover more about prayer, and even maybe to have their questions answered, need to first start praying. So check yourself if you're one of those people who think, I'm just not going to do it until I get my questions answered. Maybe that's a reason not to pray that you've created for yourself. But I also think that the questions that have been asked are very honest questions. And they're very real questions. I'm going to read them tonight. Tonight we're just going to listen to questions for the most part. And I think that if, if we just answered one question and it somehow helped one person to pray more or to find new freedom in prayer, then I think we've done a good enough job because that would be worth it. So what are these questions that we've asked? I'm going to read some of them to you. What I want you to do is listen to these questions because I want you guys didn't get to see everybody's questions. You just wrote them down on a card. We had some that were sent in. Some of them came later. I want you to listen to these questions and see how many of these resonate with you. There's quite a few of them. But I think it would be honoring for us to throw them all out to everybody at the same time at our intro. Here are your questions. What's the advantage of ritual or liturgical prayer? Scripture says the prayers of the righteous are heard. What does it mean to be righteous? Is there anything biblical about praying in a group? It seems that Jesus was almost always in solitude when he prayed. How can you have strong faith that prayer will do something or work without becoming arrogant or without making it seem like we're just rubbing a magical lamp? Should we pray if the Lord wills it and not really pray like he's our dad? And then parentheses, because with our earthly father, we can ask him for something whether or not he wills it. How can prayer be explained to others who do not believe? How often should we pray? Why pray if God already knows what your needs are? What does the Bible say about prayer? Give me specific scriptures. Why is prayer important? God doesn't need our prayers. Other than as a discipline, why is it important? What about people who have the gift of intercession? What does that mean? Are there people whose prayers are heard more than others? What should we pray for? When we pray for others, what do we pray for? It feels like my prayers are just asking God for simple things and that my prayers are weak and bland. Is prayer supposed to be relational? Some say prayer is for the purpose of being in conversation with God, but it seems like a one-sided deal. Is prayer supposed to be a dialogue, as in me speaking to God and God speaking to me? 
How can we know the difference between God speaking back to us and our own thoughts, especially if the voice tells us something we're okay with? Are we supposed to feel something, some presence, some connection with God? How does prayer's effectiveness relate to God's sovereignty? Can our prayers change God's plan? Should we expect results from our prayers? If so, what kind of results? Is prayer supposed to be two-way? If so, can we do anything to make it more likely that God will communicate with us? Is there any point for a non-follower of Christ to pray? Does fasting make prayer more effective? Does God change his plans? How do I deal with verses that says that God will do anything we ask when it doesn't seem like he does? Is there more power in greater numbers of people praying about something? What about the length of time spent in prayer? Is prayer's real purpose to change our minds, not God's? Are we supposed to approach God as sovereign king or friend or both? Should we pray for big things? Should we pray for little things? Yes. There, we can answer that one. Yes. (laughs) If God does speak to us through prayer, how do we know it's him and not Satan? What does praying in the Spirit mean? I hear stories of people awoken to pray for a situation. Why would God ask us to do something like that? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in prayer? Why do the disciples not know how to pray? Is prayer just for giving thanks? Does understanding prayer come from actually praying? If prayer is a way of petitioning God to act, if people don't pray, does God not act? Do we need to confess our sins before God will hear our prayers? Or does sin stop us from praying? Is tacking on if it is your will to the end of a prayer really just a sign that we don't believe that God's going to do what we ask him? At what point do we know God's answer is no, as opposed to just that we're not persistent enough? Does God sometimes answer prayer through a series of coincidences? If the purpose of prayer is to get to know God's character, wouldn't reading the Bible be more effective? Why should we call others to pray for us if we are sick and not just pray for ourselves. You guys resonate with that at all? Let me ask you this. Do you think that if you had answers to some of those things, would that solve at least part of our trouble with prayer? Are we going to waste our time? Tell me. Yeah. I think it would help us, if not pray more, at least like have a more fulfilling prayer life. Okay. I think when I think about it, I think it's something more, I think all those questions, the answers to those things is something we need to experience. I don't know that it would really change my personal life until I experience it. Okay. Well, I feel like it would depend on what the answers are for some of the things, like whether it would, I mean, even the idea of like a two-way conversation, if it's like, at least look at the fact of being more motivated to do something that might seem like, well, I don't see the point of it. And if the answer is like, well, you're not supposed to see the point of it. Like, well, that wouldn't necessarily be encouraging me to go do it. You know, but that might be the right answer. That might be really what the case is. Like, Okay. Yeah. I had two more questions that weren't on the list. <laughs> Throw them out. I'm, yeah, we'll write them down. If people have free will, like what's the point in praying for someone? And, um... Is there ever a time where it's okay to stop praying about a situation? Or is that like a failure? Or can you just choose to stop praying? Okay. I want us to be pretty honest. And I want, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that I will not be insulted if you take apart any of the answers I try to offer and that others try to offer in here. Because I feel like this is our chance during this series 
to discuss some of the things that I think are obstacles to us praying. But I like what Peter said because I don't think they're the only obstacles. I think there's another part of it. And let me bookmark that part. We just spent a series on spiritual disciplines, and one of those disciplines was prayer. And this series, of course, comes out of the fact that while we were discussing the discipline of prayer, we had so many questions about it. That's why we're doing this series, but go back to it and think of it in terms of the spiritual disciplines and in terms of spiritual transformation to change our heart to become more like Christ, which is in part to pray to the Father. That's what he did. That's part of who he was. So if our heart becomes more like Jesus, then we will want to pray more. But recognizing the honest struggle of our hearts about these questions and the fact that we haven't answered them, that's why we're doing this. If I could say it in plain English, you know, a lot of times we ask questions about prayer and the answer is, just pray. That's like when people ask questions about the faith and we say, well, just have faith. This group was founded to resist that kind of answer. And yes, to some questions there are not answers that we will either fathom or that will ever fully satisfy us. But to just respond with, the only way to understand prayer is to pray, ignores the fact that many of us are sitting here thinking, I I really want to answer these questions. You're not alone, by the way. The other thing that I want to do is not just look at our questions. I want to look at the questions of other people that were in some of the stuff that I've been reading. Let me just read you a couple of them. Tim Stafford is an author who writes for Christianity Today, and he's written a number of books. In fact, he's written books about having personal relationships with Jesus and a bunch of youth ministry books. And here's what he said about prayer. I have a problem with God. I've never had a conversation with him. I've never heard his audible voice. Though I sometimes feel powerful religious emotions, I'm cautious in interpreting my impulses and feelings as if they were messages from God. I've spent any number of hours talking to God, and he has not yet answered back in a voice that was undeniably his. Some people say that we should pray not because God needs it, but because we need it. From this perspective, prayer is just a self-help exercise. It's more like writing a diary, which is also good for you, but is entirely private and one-sided. That's from a person who writes books about how to have a better relationship with God. We're not alone in struggling with this. Here's a woman who had just recently come to Christ and later found out that she had breast cancer and her husband was struggling to find employment. Here's what she wrote. What's the point of praying for something to happen? I can understand the point of praying as a means of simply trying to establish community with God, but Why should I pray for someone to be healed or for my husband to get a job or for my parents to come to salvation? I pray for others because I feel helpless to do anything else and I cling to the hope that maybe, just maybe, this time it will matter. If God has plans and knows what we want and what we need and what's best for us, why should I spend hours asking him to change his mind? And how do I pray with faith when it seems that that kind of prayer rarely get any answers? One last one. The parent who had been praying found out that their 22-year-old son had committed suicide. Here's what they wrote. This is part of their prayer. Lord, we prayed regularly for all three of our children. Didn't you hear our prayers? What about the verse that says, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you? Or I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Or my grace is sufficient. Or in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. How can I reconcile those verses with my son's suicide? It's not just our questions, it's the questions of people who walk out of Christianity. 
If you'll tolerate me reading to you just a little bit more, I want to show you one last thing. People who checked out. Here's some of their blog postings about prayer. Three possible answers to prayer are yes, no, and not now. But whatever the outcome is, it's always God's will. The dilemma I have is that you get the same result if you pray to a rock. (laughs) Even Christians don't believe in the power of prayer, says another one. When they get very sick, they run to a doctor. Could it be that in their hearts they know that in serious things, prayer doesn't really work? For instance, if they believe that it's God's will no matter what the outcome, why go to a doctor? Why try to be healed? Wouldn't it be logical to just pray and see what happens? Jesus says in Mark 16, 18, They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get healed. Christians who are faithful to the words of Christ should try putting his words to the test. Here's another one praying for healing. This guy says, One thing is for sure, we would not need hospitals, doctors, nurses, medicines if prayer really works. Surely with God miraculously healing so many people, there should be little need for doctors or hospitals anymore. I mean, if prayer is such a wonderfully powerful thing, I would think that if two or three Christians could get together, agree on just one local hospital and that it should be emptied out, they would heal everybody within. I dare any church anywhere, at any time, to try and pray a hospital empty. Jesus said his disciples would do greater things than even he did. Yet the hospitals remain brimming with business. Nothing fails like prayer. Here's another one. I was a Christian for over 20 years. I realized that the crime, alcoholism, drug abuse, divorce, suicide, and dirt factor rates of Christians are equal or sometimes greater than that of non-Christians. I knew pastors who had to resign or even arrested for embezzlement, adultery, assault, and pornography charges. I knew a 26-year-old devout Christian woman who had cancer. Every week, she prayed, and the church prayed for healing, but the cancer continued its normal course. After one year, she died, and the prayer absolutely had no effect. Face the facts, there is no God. Last one. I've read it somewhere that God is the ultimate consumer good. When it fails, the customers blame themselves. There are honest cries that match the questions we're asking both inside the church and outside. Now, I will tell you that a lot of these ones that I just read to you, these last ones, are filled (laughs) with presumptions and assumptions that just don't really work out. But there's also a lot of honesty in them, too. There's a lot of honest crying about something that maybe if they did see some of those things happen or if somebody gave them a good answer, it might change their mind. That's why we're here. So I leave that kind of hanging for a moment because the importance of this series is not just to answer our questions, although that's primary, but hopefully it's to respond also and help you to respond to others who are clearly struggling. I think we could all agree that most of the comments that you just read came from a place of deep honesty and probably deep hurt. And there's pain in these comments, a pain that I think our Lord would want us to have empathy towards and compassion towards and take the subject on in that way. For each series we do, we end up reading about four or five books. One of them is this one. Some of you in the past have asked, what books might you be reading so that you can tag along if you want to and let the Holy Spirit speak to you separately in your own reading and come in here and bring your insights? One of the books we're going to be reading is Philip Yancey's Prayer. Also somebody who struggles with prayer and is going on a journey writing about all the different insights he has into prayer. I'm going to borrow these next comments from his book and want to give him proper credit for it. 
Because in his book, he starts to talk about an article that he wrote called Jesus' Unanswered Prayers. And it gave me a perspective that I hadn't seen before at looking at the Gospels. We often have this image that Jesus did everything through miraculous power. But we also have a simultaneous image of Jesus praying all the time. But we never really make the connection between them. Like, what was he praying about? And rarely do we go a step deeper and go, and how did it work out? I mean, doesn't Jesus just say whatever he wants and it just happens? It seems like he had that power. He certainly had that ability. But it also seemed like he withheld that ability. When he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulled out his sword and tried to fight. And Jesus said, no, Peter, I mean, don't you know that I could call legions of angels right now if I wanted to? And he didn't. So it seemed like Jesus prayed for reasons that differed sometimes in just using miraculous power to make things happen. So what was he praying about? And how did it turn out? I'm just going to pick three examples of Jesus praying. And maybe we start off our series just by looking at the way he did and how he looked at prayer and how, what the outcome was. Because we never really follow. We think, there's Jesus praying, and then we just move on. And I had never sat to contemplate how did that work. Here's an example in Luke 6, 12, and 13. Jesus went to pray for the disciples. He wanted to pray to choose the disciples. It says, on one of those days, Jesus went to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When the morning came, so he was there for quite a while praying on which disciples to choose. When the morning came, he called the disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Remember, Jesus had many disciples to choose from. He appointed 12 as the inner circle, and they became the apostles. So there's a prayer. Philip Yancey in his book asks, How did that work out for him? Well, you remember what he got as the disciples. One of them betrayed him, right? Judas betrayed him. Now, do you think when Jesus was up on the mountain praying, did he know that or not? So the odds aren't good. He's got one out of 12 that's going to betray him. How about Peter? How did Peter do? Peter ended up denying him. Peter was kind of a hard disciple to handle. Peter got some things right, and he messed up a lot. Peter was a hothead. Peter was hard to control. Peter's given the keys to the kingdom, and a few minutes later, he's being rebuked, called Satan. Speaking of Satan, they're having the Last Supper. The disciples are fighting. One of them is going to betray Jesus. The others are fighting over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus is talking about, like, this is my last thing. It's done. I'm going to be crucified. It's probably tomorrow. And they're fighting over who gets to be the greatest. These are the same knuckleheads that went with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. They couldn't stay awake. Like, he's come pray with me, stay awake, stay awake, couldn't stay awake. During that Last Supper, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked me to sift you like wheat. That's Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus tells Peter, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter is being told by Jesus that Satan has come to him and said, Satan has asked me to sift you like wheat. I mean, Peter's natural response would have been, you said no, right? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus' response is, but I've prayed for you, that you may not fail, that your faith will not fail. What happens to Peter's faith? What does Jesus mean by that? 
He prays for Peter, and that very night, Peter is going to deny him three times. Does Jesus automatically get what he's asking for? It's just a question to put out there, because we never really even consider the fact that Jesus prayed and asked for things that we have recorded, and yet they don't seem like they have the answers that we would expect, even from the Christ. What happens in those stories? I mean, look at the other disciples. We have like James and John fighting over who should be first even before the Last Supper. Thomas, who's doubting. I mean, we have a whole bunch of disciples we don't know anything about because they never said anything worthy of writing down. <laughs> like Bartholomew and those guys. Like, we, don't, we barely know their names because they never said anything, right? So do you think Jesus was frustrated? Did he look back at that prayer and go, what did I hear that night? Yeah. But we have like the idea of Jesus is fully human and fully divine at the same time. But even if Jesus had told Peter, you know, I, I pray for you and I know what's going to happen. You know, Peter, Peter didn't even think he'd deny God. You know, he like, he, he, he argued, you know, I will never do that, right? So like, there is a sense where, it, and I don't even know if it would have mattered if Jesus had said, I mean, it's enough that he said, I'm praying for you. Because even if he said, I'm praying for you, and I know you'll come through, well, Peter would have said, of course I'll come through for you, right? Until he's actually in the situation, then Peter starts to back out and starts to do all these kind of you know, different things. But Peter hadn't experienced it yet, so it didn't make sense. Well, I guess Jesus hadn't experienced it yet either, so I don't know how that makes any sense. <laughs> I mean, I, this is not an easy concept to fit in our head, that, that Jesus, who has all power at his hands, apparently, because he said it, spends time asking for things, probably knowing that they're not going to result. And the reason I know that is when he says to Peter, I have prayed for you that, you may, that your faith may not fail. And then it goes on to say, and when you have turned back, that you will strengthen your brothers. So he kind of knows what's about to come, but he's prayed. Now, in a moment, we'll talk about, couldn't you have done something else other than just pray for him? Why is Jesus praying? Why isn't he just using his miraculous power? Like, what is the deal? Yeah. There's like a really beautiful sentiment in that, I think, that Christ was like, oh, but I pray for you. But then I look at it, and I'm like, if God himself, this goes back to my question I added, will pray for someone who has free will, and it does nothing, then why pray for someone who has free will? I have an we, we, That's part of the questions we have to get to. That's why this series will actually be interesting. Yeah, Mel. Two things actually. Um, I feel like we're focusing on like Jesus was trying to pray to make something happen, but he wasn't always praying to make something happen because half the time we open the Bible, it says, You were healed by faith. Now go tell others of the faith that you have shown me because it is your faith that has healed you. And so I think prayer itself isn't so much what makes things happen because you have to have faith that reflects your prayer. And even in this passage here, um, when it says that. Um, that your faith should not fail when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. If you read further out of Luke, if you read into Acts, and you see how Peter defends God and Jesus and how he came up with Gentiles, that's, I think that's alluding to what God is going to use Peter as. So I think it's more than just taking out little passages and saying, like, oh, Jesus' prayer was unanswered this time. It was unanswered in the way that we should expect it to happen. It's because he was praying, because that's how connected he was with the Father, because he was fully human, but at the same time, he was fully 
Jesus Christ, part of the Trinity of God and the Holy Spirit. Okay, come back. That's great, but that takes us back to that Christian that left the faith. When prayer doesn't work, we blame ourselves. So I'm like, oh crap, I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough faith. I'm not the type of person that has faith. Why pray? Like, it takes us back to that. Yeah, we will cover the issue of faith and prayer totally separately. We have covered it before, and I think there is a school of thought in Christianity that if you, if you don't get healed, it's because you don't have faith. We're not doing that tonight. All right, which I, we've critiqued that view a number of times because I, I don't think it's quite biblical. But that's why it's important to look at what we call, quote-unquote, Jesus' unanswered prayers. Because we know that in instances in Scripture, when he went to heal people, he just did it. So it means that prayer is a different thing than God acting. In my mind, in watching Christ's life right now, they're different things. He communed with the Father, even though he's so close, being one with God, he still spent time communing. We should look at that lesson and learn about it. We should watch Jesus and say, how often did Jesus pray for himself versus pray for others? Almost every recorded prayer in Scripture is Jesus praying for others. There's only one that I can think of where he's praying for himself, and that's in the Garden of Gethsemane. You watch that model, just look at that and notice it. That's all I'm saying. Because we're going to use that example, it's good. It's Jesus. He should be our example. We want to be more like him and watch go. That's one. That's two. Another example that we can look at here is in the short term, he knew what was going to happen and he prayed anyway. And that's important too because he surrendered and said, I have prayed for you. And his comments indicate that he knows that Peter is going to fail. Just like he knows that Judas is going to betray him. But the important part is, I agree with you also, that I'm artificially truncating the timeline so that we're looking at a very short time frame. We know that even Judas's betrayal is ultimately to the glory of God. It what leads Jesus to the reason he came ultimately. All right? Peter also, when he is restored, becomes one of the key disciples in the movement. And Jesus is praying that so that when you have turned back, you will strengthen your brothers. Peter was a hothead. How many times did he not even get it? Jesus like, i got to wash your feet. No, nope, you won't wash my feet. Jesus said, like, unless I wash your feet. He's like, all right, all right, I get it now. He says, I have to go and be betrayed. And, Jesus, and Peter says, no, I won't let it happen. I mean, Peter constantly missed the point. His denials ended up probably humbling him to the point where he was ready to serve, as we see in the book of Acts. Yeah. Don't you think, like, part of the reason why Jesus probably didn't pray for himself is because he already knew what his, his purpose was when he came to earth? Well, who says that didn't come through those times in prayer? Like, there's nothing to say otherwise, because I don't think Jesus was a baby who knew. At that time, he, he knew, oh, I'm going to die for the sins of the life. He was a little kid, you know, and so maybe through his years, I mean, and some people argue the baptism, you know, hearing God's voice, you know, there's all kinds of different thoughts, but who's not to say that prayer wasn't an intimate experience of figuring out his mission just as it should be for us? Part of the problem with using Christ as our example, even though it's the biblical thing we're supposed to do, is we end up getting in this mind-boggling area of trying to understand like his relationship to the Father, his part of the Trinity, and then we all just go, I don't know how I can be like him when he's got all these other additional things. But I think we need to focus on the biblical example of how he lived. Fully God and fully man, but our part would be to follow what he was able to do as fully man. Like to see that example of day-to-day life and say, if he prayed, then that clearly is an indication that prayer also is more than just for things to happen. 
and he's having this relationship thing. I'd like to make an analogy. When we, a lot of people think of worship in the church today, they think of the music time, right? Then when music ends, worship ends, then the pastor gets up into, and and I've been, I'm always very critical of that. I think that the entire service is worship, and that you know the entire life is 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 worship. So, in the same way, perhaps we simply have to expand our category of what prayer is. It's not just about this. It's not just about this. It's not just about this, but. I would like to say that in relation to the story that we were talking about with Peter, that what's most interesting is not the nature of God's divineness or whether it's being answered. Look at the effect it must have had on Peter, just for him to hear it, that Jesus was praying for him. How bizarre it would have been for Peter to have heard, but when you come back. I mean... After he denies Christ, obviously he must feel this tremendous guilt and shame. And I wonder if at that moment he's also thinking back to that moment when Jesus said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I pray for you. you know, and, and so in that case, it's really not about God knowing the result or it's not really a question of freedom of the will or sovereignty. It's just that it's an experience of Peter. Peter knew that Jesus prayed for him and Peter didn't know what would happen. Just to be clear, you know, right after he says this in Luke 22, Peter does say, I will never do that. And then Jesus goes on and says, no, tonight you're going to deny me three times. I mean, that's when Jesus tells him. Like, this, this part isn't enough. But to make it crystal clear, when, when Peter says, that will never happen, Jesus goes on and says, no, Peter, you will deny me tonight before the rooster crows three times. So, I mean, I think Peter went off with that knowledge. But you're right, he probably remembered that during his period of restoration that Jesus had prayed for. Yeah. Um, something that I always go back to when I'm thinking like in that way, because I know I, it's really hard. I go back to when Jesus was praying for himself before he was being crucified. He prayed more than one time. If there's any other way, if there's any other way that your cup can be moved from my hands, if, if there's any other way that I don't have to fulfill this, please make it so, but God didn't do it. And I think that that's just another, that's like, that's one example to show that even though the Son of God was praying for God to do something else that was outside of his will, God didn't do it. He didn't show him favoritism. He didn't, you know, move it because he knew there was nothing else that could be done to that great magnitude. So I think just like we can take that into the way we pray for people. Like it's not the same way because, you know, it's different contexts, but I think that's a good thing to look at as far as like when you pray for people, like, okay, God might not heal me or God might not make me feel better because. He doesn't want me. It's not that he, he doesn't like it when I'm sick. You know, he doesn't like it when his children are dying of cancer and everything. But I think just like the prayer that's behind you wanting him to change that just shows how much faith you do have in it. I know you're talking about prayer and faith. Yeah. So that's just one way, I think, to look at it. I know that doesn't answer like every single aspect of that question because I know I still struggle with that. But I think that's a good thing to look at and say like, well, not all the time. I mean, I think, I, like, I totally hear that. I think my problem is not when God doesn't answer prayer, because I'm actually really okay with that. Right. Like, there's something I've been praying for, not three days, three hours, ten years. Right. Ten years. And it hasn't happened, mm-hmm. and it ha- nothing has changed for that situation. And that doesn't shake my faith in God. Like, I'm lucky that way. Like, I can still pray. I just don't understand the dynamic of right. prayer. Like, why pray for something to change? Maybe the point is just to encourage people. Maybe the reason why Peter was able to turn around and, and like, do better is because he remembered, well, like, 
God prayed for me. So even though I denied him and he prayed that, you know, I would go back and do this, that I'm not a horrible person and I, there's still some redemption in me, I don't know. You know what? Let's stop for a second. What if Jesus had not told Peter that he had prayed for him? Would that mean that Jesus wouldn't pray? Of course not. Jesus prayed for Peter as a separate thing. He just did. He prayed for him, knowing what was going to happen. That's the example we need to follow. Even if Jesus had never told Peter, I prayed for you, even if he didn't have the benefit of knowing that Jesus had done that, that's a great thing that Jesus told him. But it would make no difference in the prayer time. Jesus would have still prayed for him. Why? We need to leave that right there. I'm not going to answer it. Also about Jesus in the garden. Once Jesus accepted his will, the Father's will, Jesus was the one who was strengthened by that for the next couple of hours that went by. If you watch the passion events unfold, even when he's standing in front of Pilate and he's saying like, and Pilate's saying, don't you know that I have the power to condemn you and crucify you? Jesus is totally calm. You have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. He's totally in line with what's going on. He's the one who's standing before the Sanhedrin. They're saying like, if, you know, are you saying that you are this and you're, gonna be, you're on trial for blasphemy? Watch your words carefully. He's like, I am. So once we accept that will, that's, that's a totally different thing. And I know that brings up this question. If we knew his will, we'd all be okay with it. The problem that you're going to throw at me, and I know that's why we're going through the series, is, yeah, that's great. Jesus knew exactly what the Father's will was. That's why he was okay with it. We don't. I think it's okay with you not being okay with God saying, like, this is my will. Like, I think with Jesus, like when he says, let this cup pass, I still think he struggled with it, you think? You know what? There's no way you can humanly, it would be a little weird as anybody who's fully man to think, I'm totally okay with being crucified in the morning, right? <laughs> it, it was a torturous way to die. I'm going to be whipped, beaten, made fun of, mocked, all those things, scourged, put on trial, crucified. Like, I don't think there's any part of them who just got up and went, you know, just like, all right, I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's get this thing over with. I don't think that actually happens. There's still going to be a struggle. But that's different than saying he was not okay with it. I mean, from that point forward, even on the cross, his last prayer is for the people crucifying him. So he became fully okay with what was going on in in that sense. Like, not my will, but yours. And I'm going all the way with it. Of course, there was pain and struggle and all that stuff from the human perspective. Let me close it off like this tonight. I'm only bringing up the example of Jesus because it's simultaneously a great and a bad example. We immediately start looking at the supernatural and the divine parts of Christ when we have these discussions. But I want you to see that Jesus himself prayed even when he knew that the things weren't going to go exactly the way he was praying for them to happen. But in the Father's direction and his sovereignty and his great plan, they were going to work out even better. Some of them I still struggle with. For example, in John 17, Jesus prays for the unity of the church. He prays for the disciples and all of his future followers to be united as one so the world will know that he is the one in the way that we're united. By last count, there were something like 32,000 denominations in the world. In 2,000 years, we haven't fulfilled that part yet. Does that mean that Jesus was just praying, saying, this is what I hope will happen? Is he actually praying and it didn't happen against Jesus' prayers? Or is prayer something different?
Because some people could look and say, well, that didn't seem to go very good. Your disciples are just doing whatever they want. Philip Yancey said this as his conclusion about Jesus' unanswered prayers. Let me just read this to you. Jesus' prayer for Peter, and perhaps even Judas as well, expresses God's unfathomable respect for human freedom. Even when he senses his close friend will betray him, Jesus does not intervene with a freedom-crushing miracle. He allows history to take its course at enormous personal cost, praying all the while that even betrayal and death may be redeemed as part of the outworking of the grace of God. Look at that last part. He was praying that even those things would be redeemed. There is this tension between free will and the redemption that God takes whatever we do and somehow is going to make something good out of it. Not just in this world, but in the ultimate perfect kingdom that we're going to be in. It's a redemption of the whole earth. It's a crushing of all sin. It's taking all the stuff and not just scrapping and starting over, but redeeming it. That redemption theme is throughout the New Testament. So there is a tension. It's right there on the screen between free will and between prayer. And I sense that a lot of what we're going to be struggling with over the next couple of weeks is to explore that tension. Leave it there and pray. Place where none of us feel like anything got answered. Leave the tension. Maybe you'll come back next week. This is the word that says to be continued. Let's pray. Lord, you who are close to the Father in ways that we cannot even understand and can barely comprehend, prayed and prayed constantly. Jesus, you who share a oneship with the Father, prayed. You who had all power, you prayed. Lord, give us the strength to respond to these questions. Many of them come from a very honest place in our hearts. We are not making excuses for our lack of prayer. Lord, gift us with your Holy Spirit and special understanding in this room. We honestly want to know the answers to many of these questions. And if it's been because of bad theology or just growing up, being lazy in our understanding of prayer, this is our chance to cure that. Lord, enter into our hearts. Transform us from the inside so that maybe that we can yearn to pray. But we also want to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. We want to know the answers. Give us a glimpse of what prayer is all about. Pray this in your name. Amen.